0: Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm Monica Vellevin. In celebration of our 40th full episode and our new conversational intermezzo format, we're making this particular release free to all listeners. You can unlock access to all future discussions for only $2.50 per intermezzo. Also included are updates and transcripts of the main episodes every membership helps keep the podcast going. Start receiving your membership rewards by clicking on the orange Patreon icon on our website, lapseslima.com. Thank you for your support. Welcome to our first free-range intermezzo. What do we mean by this? We've been sort of copying a feel <laughs> about what our readers want and they want more levels of engagement. We are trying to see how to best provide them and we thought one of the best things we could do was to, you know, have our academic episodes and then our more relaxed, casual, conversational episodes and this is the first of them where we're joking in the backstage and, and calling it like it is and swearing liberally. So we hope that the two extremes might be To bridge a gap that pleases one and all. To my left is David Getson, who, as you know, is an architectural historian, as am I. Hello. To my right is my business partner and husband of nine years, Alonso Toledo. Hello. Who is also a practicing architect. This is the team we're going to start conversing with in between episodes. I hope you get to know us. I hope you send us your questions, your provocations, and bring them on.
1: Last time, we talked about two things in our 40th episode, the Bauhaus and suprematism, as well as the Brexit, the British exit from the European Union, and both instances being examples of historical trends playing out in unexpected ways, really.
0: Expected or unexpected. I think what we are providing is more of an unexpected reading to uh, historical orthodoxy that has become fairly calcified, especially in the case of the Bauhaus.
1: I think that's a good way to put it, yeah.
0: There there is a very sort of accepted history of the Bauhaus and its merits, and we're countering that in a fairly aggressive way.
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, we had a whole section on that with the Two Houses series uh, as part of the expressionism bit. There's a a lot of detail in there if anybody wants to go to the back catalog, but do you have any thoughts uh, on that right at the moment about this kind of uh, revisionist history of re-examining the Bauhaus from a new vantage point?
0: I do, and it makes me reflect because I started, as you know, in philosophy and literature before I moved into design at all. It makes me think on the importance of having a canon at all. You have all of this criticism about the Western canon, and I think, Well, we do. I mean, the Bauhaus is the equivalent of 20th century modern literature, and it's good to have a canon that we can actually reflect upon. And I think that's going to be one of the critical things in the time and place we're in today historically. That canon reflects a morphology that, you know, it's it's, it's very easy to take it for granted, but it's a wonderful structuring device to spin off from. I think that we are at a point where the historian's work is largely imaginative, and I like that we're there.
1: What do you think needs to be imagined? Put another way, what does the canonical history get wrong that requires this imaginative leap?
0: Canonical history, its wealth is in its contradictions and in the amount of histories that the history includes. And I think if you're willing to take tentacles and all, then you have a broader picture that is not entirely coherent. It's not plot-driven, it's not character-driven, it's a different sort of narrative structure. And so we move the characters on that chessboard of a plot that we designed for them, and that's a historian's job. You're basically crafting fiction from what at some point were facts that became trapped in amber and shifted out of context.
1: What arcs do you think are in need of exploring?
0: Oh, well, many. And I think that's what the podcast is. That's the purpose of the podcast. We began it trying to say, all right, this is the story. These are the stories, the conventional stories that were told. This is the architectural historian's bedtime reading. And we want to look at the nightmare side because, you know, it's very very streamlined. And what I think is more interesting than that because the podcast is clearly leading in a certain direction, a telos. It's pointing in a direction. It clearly has a, an intent. We like to reveal, to unearth those bare bones, that morphology, and say it's not necessarily what you think it is. The animal might look different. You know how in museums the dinosaur skeletons are often presented, uh, they're often built into shapes that are not necessarily the right ones. Bones oh, of other animals are incorporated.
1: Growing up, I remember Iguanodon being the classic example.
0: Yes, and I think as historians we do that as well, we do. And it's legitimate, but we have to do it with sincerity.
1: For anyone not familiar with that story or those wonderful old pictures, it was assumed for decades and decades that this creature Iguanodon uh, was a four-legged thing with a hook on his nose, like a rhinoceros, because they just thought that's the way that it would go. But then as the science developed, They realized he was a two-legged instead of a four-legged creature, and the hook was actually his thumb.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, And so uh, it was a complete rearranging. uh, And hold that thought on morphology. Uh, We actually did a whole episode about morphology recently, and it it will not Mm
0: -hmm. absolutely
1: will not be our last. I like that you brought up the idea of the architect's bedtime reading. Uh, We. Happen to have a practicing architect here with Alonzo, and you've been following along with the podcast as we've been going throughout these 40 episodes, plus the members-only intermezzos, which we've begun to accrue. I'm wondering, with your perspective, you've told me that you've often wished that you had more material to dig into on this theoretical level. And so now you've been engaging with this material. What's your reaction upon bringing your practical experience to this kind of uh, theoretical study?
2: While I've been listening to the 40 plus episodes of the podcast and hearing you two talk right now, I mean, there are a lot of things I want to say, but I'm trying hard to find a bridge between that and any point of my day-to-day life or occupation as a practicing architect. And I think it's a bloody shame that architectural theory and, and, and the bulk of our architectural practice seem to run into parallel lines, which, I mean, exist, and, I mean, they're both equally important, I mean, of course, but I just find that history in architecture, sadly, doesn't have the role that it can have in other careers or occupations like I don't know, politics or Doesn't philosophy. does yeah.
0: propulsive force. I mean,
2: you you can practice architect- architecture without knowing anything of architectural history.
0: Which I believe adds up to a very irresponsible practice. Yes, of course. Now, now, that said, also, I would like to say that my opinion is that we've reached a point in the architectural establishment where it's the big firms that can afford to do history, that can afford to do theory, and I feel that history and theory are becoming the new ornament. Right. They're a form of luxuriance, like saying, Look, I am a major firm, hence I have the luxury of indulging in in mm-hmm. theoretical thought, no matter how superficial. Most of it is incredibly vapid. Oh yeah. But it's it's a status sign. And I really think it's becoming the new ornament.
1: A lot of of it is uh, the sprinkling of buzzwords into the marketing material. Mm -hmm. I know certainly that when I was closer to the Academy in recent years, a lot of the professional interaction with the Academy was to learn how to name check Gilles Deleuze in what you were doing in order to appears right. sophisticated mm-hmm. uh, and then of course you it's like lifting a rock you actually follow that man's footnotes and they <laughs> lead to a worm eating its own tail well, but the uh, it, it seems alonzo like you're you're really pointing out something that i agree with that you feel like there is a latent opportunity that's not being taken advantage of. I think politics is an excellent analogy because imagine if someone is running an election campaign and didn't look you at, can't the do last, politics. at the last 10 yes. elections. The
0: fact of the matter is it is done. They do do politics without well, To historic, their own detriment. To everybody's yeah. detriment. That's the tragedy. <laughs> but, but,
2: but let's say that the core of a politician's job is intimately related to understanding the history of what they're trying to govern.
0: Oh, well. I mean, mm, it should be. But, but
2: say, I mean, I wish. <laughs> just, just to put an, a, a,
0: yes, a yes. example, I find that
2: in architecture, we are especially forgetful uh, generation or professionals, this new generation of kids that are graduating from, from school, yeah. they can't even conceive or they can't remember that 15 years ago, all plans were drafted by hand. I mean, they don't even remember that. They haven't 15...
0: done it. And that's like the most superficial level of excavation. Yes. Yeah.
2: And so they, with that, it just shows that they didn't even understand how things were done in half a generation ago.
0: And of course, and at to... some point this wasn't. Now it also has all of this... Uh... Prestige of being a university career that can take as long as medical school and be as costly, (laughs) but you know at one point this was passed on man from man, master Mm -hmm. to master, and you learned it by doing, and it was a craft.
2: By saying that a profession can work without knowing anything of theory, which is this very sad, sad reality. What I mean to say is that theory can be taught as something accessory or complementary to your profession. But at the end of the day, it's knowing how to do the renderings, knowing how to do whatever your client wants you to do. I mean, it is I mean, there's such a, a, a disjunction, such a separation between what you learn in school and what you have to practice that, like I say, it's like, yeah. like Monica saying, it's just firms that can actually use history as a gimmick of saying, hey, I mean, yes, we, as we, a
0: gimmick. Absolutely.
2: We have we can afford to do this you need to know the history of art. Because if you're going to go there and do a uh, like white over white, go into Malevich, yeah. and present that, I mean, everybody's going to go, hey, I mean, this was done like a century ago. So you need to sort of be aware of that.
0: But you know, I have the impression that in the case of architecture, and I think it's one of the reasons why you know this very, very long pit stop at the Bauhaus and its surroundings mm-hmm. is important, is that I think that once the international style settled and became the establishment, there's been a sort of agenda to keep it narrow. And uh, I think it begins with a Bauhaus and uh, the decadence we're we're, we're facing now, the lack of architectural culture or the the saplings, the burgeoning saplings Mm -hmm. of architectural culture, because we have to discuss where we are, that makes me wonder whether this hasn't been, on some, in some way, much more controlled than in the history of art. There were several interesting exoduses. The Bauhaus moves abroad, and then at the same time you have the surrealists moving abroad, and you have filmmakers like Luis Buñuel going to Mexico. So there's this whole creative, highly qualified diaspora that goes to the Americas and they set up shop. And I do believe that some of them had more sincere intentions than other. And uh, the ambition of forming a school, of forming a legacy, of—I think that's, that, that's very involved in what, in what the Bauhaus evolved into. And there's a perverse element to it. There's a schizoid element to it that the Bauhaus began as expressionistic. And then it sort of like buried that under the kitty litter. And I said, no, we're taking this line. And they went full steam ahead with that. There were economic restraints, but that could have taken very different shapes. And it's interesting that it did take the one that it took.
2: What are the firms that have a school? I mean, it's just not a person doing whatever he wants, say, Jean Nouvel. Yes. I mean, his architect is just what he thinks. Of. I mean, that's
0: <laughs> If he thinks. If he thinks.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and uh, Jean Nouvel. and uh, uh, vis-a-vis some other architects like uh, that at least have a style. Saha, makes make you rest <gasps> in peace. Or, um, or, or or Frank Gehry. I mean that you can recognize a building because it's in their line of design. But and you know, okay, I it, think
0: that with people like Gary, it's like recognizing an animal by its scat.
2: Well, well, that's the thing. I mean, if if uh, let's say if Frank Gehry were to die tomorrow, then I can I can imagine <laughs> you can laugh. <laughs> I can imagine his uh, followers to keep on doing Frank Gehry buildings. Oh. I can I can imagine that happening.
0: I. The, don't know. The
2: thing is that if that's as close as we have to a school of thought, I mean, and just comparing it to what you were saying about the international style and about, I mean, it's, it's just people yeah. trying to set up shop and say, okay, this yeah. is how it's going to be. Then, you know, it's you really falls short. I mean, really oh, what yeah. your school is just wrinkling up a piece of paper. I, I mean, is 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 that it? I mean, it's,
0: it's poor because it's form based rather than information based. And, uh, I think, uh, that the the Zaha line has more interesting things to say about that. Right. But I mean that form is born out She's of information. She's honest much more honest, completely <laughs> honest. I, I liked her. And, it, you know, one thing is form-based and the other mm-hmm. is what I call information-based. And so the information mm-hmm. is what gives the thing its shape. It is mm-hmm. also co- coeval with the shape. They happen at the same time. Mm-hmm. But the shape is not bereft of that right. information at any point. But
2: that goes as far as, say, POMO. I mean, still, there we're still with information-based... But
0: POMO is a really interesting case because POMO is supposed to be a reflection on history.
2: Right, that's why. But it's information-based.
0: Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. it is. It's
2: very formal, but, it's, but it, yes. is, it is cerebral. It is,
0: it is a combinatory game keep of mind, historical data.
1: I, I feel obliged to mention, keep in mind whenever you're discussing postmodern anything uh, and information or history, you need to remember that stripe of postmodernism that will reassert the Cretan liar paradox and tell you with words that all words are meaningless. Well, and that's certainly part of the postmodern soup.
0: It is, it is. But it, it's it's funny that people buy it, and and I mean literally buy it.
1: Oh, it sounds sophisticated. It's an emperor's new clothes type moment. But
0: it has those clothes haven't been new in, in quite a few decades.
1: Yeah, yeah, they were. Uh, and that yeah. also
0: speaks to architecture's disconnect with other types of of conversation. Again, architecture has a sort well, of
1: like, like technology design. One
0: night standish relationships, it's interested in everything, but it doesn't commit too much. And uh, that's where we are at this point. And uh, that's one of the things that struck me that a lot of uh, a lot of the philosophy that is, gets read in, in, in architecture school today is, you know, it's um, they're stuck in the 70s.
1: Yes, <laughs>
0: and n- not everything, but far too much. It's, it's suspicious. <laughs> it's suspiciously dated.
1: Well, it's because if but one, that's
0: where the school is being formed. You are a Foucaultian, or you are a Deleuzian, mm-hmm. or you are. But you are. N- well, you are speaking in reference to. The thing is, it <laughs>
1: takes it takes courage to go beyond that stuff, because it does. what that's, that's where do, the jobs are. What that stuff does is it gets you. That stuff is where the jobs are. Yes, and that stuff also gives you an easy out. It lowers the stakes because anybody can say anything. There are no wrong answers and it takes really the meaning of inquiry out of it and it becomes a mutual self congratulatory session
2: but i wish there were still i mean i wish that question were still valid now it is saying well, what, what's what's your school I know it's almost a crime to ask that. It's like what your school is like, no, I don't have a school. I mm. think about pertinence over to the side and about coherence of the building to its own nature and to its requirement. Okay, fine, but what's your school? It's like, no, how can you ask me that? That's a how that's can you a, limit me to a school?
0: I like to ask these people, you know, not what, what's your school, but what is your literary technique, because that's a mise and
2: abime thing is that you can't ask that nowadays and it's like no. well so then what What? what are firms doing I mean, if they're not trying to form a school
1: it's even taboo to say what do you value because the idea of value in architecture is mm. considered uh, insulting to anyone who perhaps might not share that value mm-hmm. which is unfortunate because then that means that you're valuing nothing
0: right or we value different things, and that's fine. Right. I mean, then we can start talking. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I, I, I like the conversation. Mm-hmm. But architecture has become its own sort of little bubble, and all architects, many architects now just talk amongst themselves, and it becomes very solipsistic and silly. And so you pry out a tentacle outside of your bubble with the bubble slime, and you touch slightly outside, and then you bring it back in, and you... And, you know, that's something to write home about. But it's become, you know, architecture has become insular. That's what I was looking for. Mm. And like I like to say, everything that stays in islands becomes either hypertrophied or atrophied. And uh, that's how you know that landscape. That's the morphology of islands.
2: I see it the other way around. I, I see everything just in this big ocean of being, going with the tide. And I mean, to me, being insular it, it implies having, I mean, but wanting to have a firm, ground, a firm ground of saying, you know, uh, we are here to do this.
0: Oh, but the desi- to quote uh, Wellerbeck, the, the island is not a desire, it is a possibility. Right. Okay, and fine. I think that's that's kind of the, the scope mm-hmm. is this little archipelago of, of poop, but uh, in a toilet rather than an ocean. Charming but this analogy. is all very, it's, it's, it's contained. It's very contained. And once you're in, in, you know, in the academic rut, you realize that it's a valley surrounded by oof, an infinity of mountains. Mm-hmm. And you could climb up and down for a long time and just get lost and never come back.
2: <laughs> yes, I mean, he, at our firm, at Diacritica, I know that, I mean, we've, we've been, what, five years?
0: Five years. Just, uh, just, five. just we, five. We and have a five-year-old child. And for
2: those five years, we've been trying to make a school. Trying to generate some architectural thought that if we were to be hit by a truck uh, next day, that our uh, followers and people that work with us can continue down the same line. And we don't have a school yet. I mean, We no, think about we do. it we do. with we do. every we project. Do. We do. But we don't have that. But we have that pursuit. I just don't see that in so many other firms, both big and small. See, uh,
0: m- most firms don't have it. And, and some, because this is a conversation we need to have at a later date, what is a school? What is a how do you establish a continuity? Because mm-hmm. when you speak of architecture being floating about in the tide, like mm-hmm. this amorphous thing, which is provocative and we should mm-hmm. discuss it, what is that tide? Is that is that history? What is that tide? What what's the undercurrent that moves things?
2: At all oh there's this well, I think we're opening a lot of themes for future interventions I know but, the, uh, but this is great you know and to that's me, the
0: thing that caught my eye you're speaking about a tide and I'm like oh that's interesting that's yeah. why
2: I see all these all these architects that are not trying to set up a school It's sort of just swimming there in the ocean it's like oh'm I'm, I'm a minimalist it's like oh well, that's because I, I don't like to think too hard about <laughs> and um, right. And, and so I'm there. And then five years from now, they're going to say that they're in whatever else. because. All right. I mean, that's but then
0: first we have about. school. We have style. These are different mm-hmm.
2: concepts. And oh, we have fashion.
0: And we have fashion. We
2: have fads. Fashion, oh, the, which the wonderful... you
0: must remember, as Leopardi said, the greatest of Italian poets, fashion is the sister of death.
1: It's the, wo- the wonderful 19th century uh, German distinction between stil and mode.
0: Yes. Oh, this is gonna be rich. Yes. I am never going to run out of topics for this podcast. We certainly
1: won't. The genesis of this podcast was a discussion similar to the one we were having today and we thought that we should
0: Yeah, we uh, have them continually and we think record. they're valuable. We don't mm-hmm. we don't treat these discussions lightly.
2: I just want to go back, I mean, to yeah. to what you were saying about how one of the missions of Diacritico was to I mean keep the firm small but but prove that there is a way of applying history to, to architectural practice.
0: Yeah. And that has been a challenge. It's been, it's been it's it's the been an biggest awful challenge. It's been the biggest challenge in our mm-hmm. in our practice. And, bar none. <laughs> um, and
2: mo- the pro- most of the projects that we have designed that include this foundation yeah. of history are the ones that have been kept in paper because yep. clients don't want that.
0: They don't. They, they don't. don't.
2: And um, I mean, I've I've had the the opportunity of working in architecture both in Peru and in the States. Yeah. And uh, so I'm making a general inference that mm-hmm. this is not just local.
0: No. No. Absolutely.
2: Well,
1: well, I I would be curious to get either of your reactions to the idea. And now, well, I've had the good fortune of being able to not only do this uh, theoretical and historical research work, but also some design work with projects that you guys have been doing, research for them, and uh, also a lot of this uh, public-facing stuff. But the one way that you can see history directly impacting practice is in the areas of process and morphology. If you're looking at how shape is created, how it has been created, what forces are at play regarding value, what is considered important, what is considered good, what is considered bad, and also how process has changed over the years. Mm -hmm. You alluded to that with paper versus the computer. And say, for example, you've gone through the paper to computer transition without necessarily realizing how these media are going to inflect the content. You're going to be taking a little bit of your design agency and surrendering that to the technology, either the technology of the pencil on the one hand or the technology of the mouse on the other. But if you bring a self-consciousness to that process, then you are able to see, okay, How can this be different? I think it's very important, and this is one of the reasons why we've been focusing on the Bauhaus. The Bauhaus was very acutely aware that the old master-apprentice model, which really was medieval, had become totally distanced from anything physical. And you had workshops with masters, apprentices, Walter Gropius was one of these, Mm -hmm. with Peter Behrens. And they wanted to reintroduce a unification to revivify that process. So but at that the
0: same time, in the process of doing that, mm-hmm. you metaphysicize craftwork. Exactly.
1: And that's Each a double-edged sword.
0: Right. That's a double-edged sword.
1: So I think there's an opportunity there that when you see the generation of shape, when you see process, and really those two are exceedingly closely linked. Yeah. Uh, the architectural history of the second half of the 20th century intimately looks at that from a number of really antagonistic perspectives mm-hmm. ideologically. Well, Alonso, do you have any thoughts on that, about how the history of process or perhaps the ignorance of the history of process is certainly going to make a difference and is going to impact uh, how a project is executed and what decisions are made. The thing is that there is no such thing
2: as a general project. I mean, there is right now, and this is one of the things that I I argue as one of the Fundamental problems with architecture is that not everything that's built is architecture. Not every project that has an architect uh, designing it is architecture. Not
1: every architect that's a contentious question in theory, an and that's an imp- a really important <laughs> one. People, yeah, I agree. Uh, go on, mm-hmm.
2: and so. And, and I always argue, I say that, I mean, not, not every uh, doodle is a painting, not every scribble is literature, not every construction is architecture.
0: This is actually going exactly. very much against the grain of
1: um,
0: this whole tendency in architecture today that says architecture is everywhere. Architecture is everything. Everything oh, is designed. And people
1: say art is everywhere. People exactly. want to think it's the that graffiti tags are art. It's uh, the
0: it's nihilistic,
1: really. <laughs> it is nihilistic. Frank Lloyd Wright was roundly criticized for driving down Fifth Avenue and seeing something like the Seagrams building. And he waved his cane at it and said, <laughs> that's not architecture. That's building. <laughs> oh, that's nothing but building.
2: And, at least, and that's because he never went down to Peru. <laughs> of course, he would have shot himself. The, um, <clears throat> no, I mean, here, oh, how should I put this, um... The, the, the problem is that there isn't, I mean, we're missing a word here because we have good architecture. And when you see a, a, a crappy economy housing building that you can see is completely driven by profit and, and right. by
0: murderous and, greed. Yes. By murderous
2: greed and by building parameters. By the, by mm-hmm. And those are the only things that condition, M-
1: meaning zoning and, and constraints and constraints. Yes. Yeah.
2: So the result of the building's design has no agency from the architect. Exactly. It's just zoning and the um, developers' interests, mm-hmm. and, and budget. So, yes, uh-huh. which is part of that.
0: That's the formula. It's so, a formula. You so, know? Zoning so that plus budget. That's
2: mm-hmm. it. So that building, I mean, that we see there, and Lima's full of them, is not good or bad architecture. You, should, you just don't look at that and say, "Well, that's crappy architecture." No, that's just <laughs> not architecture at all. Let's just find another word for it. So when you say that, or oh, when you ask
1: if um, construction, perhaps, just calling it
0: a building a
1: building it's a building it's
0: building vis-a-vis architecture they're different things now they can coincide they often do but
2: So when you talk about projects, about whether and morphology is applied in a project, then we're really referring to that 1% to the tip of the pyramid of architectural projects that can actually be considered architecture. Mm -hmm. And most of those fall in that category of the design commissions to the top firms that can actually afford to give that surplus added value, be it gimmicky or not, Mm -hmm, of including mm -hmm. some sort of historically conscious process in the design. Mm -hmm. But having also worked as a partner to some of the big firms in the States, I can tell you it's just, I mean, the design process there is just as random as I'm seeing it over here. It is. It's just when you have a project that you need to give a show uh, about and to talk about that you have to say, well, let's find some sort of justification about why this is like this. And there's a great book, I mean, great because it's so bad, that (laughs) uh, that we got some years ago where it's, um, I can't remember the name of it, but it's a catalog of shapes. It's just pages and pages and pages of different do shapes that. of buildings. I do so you can have that. one yes. that's shaped like, I mean, with a hole in the yes. center. The other one shaped like a toilet. The other mm. one shaped like a pyramid. <laughs> and It's like, oh, it's like, well, which one should we do now? It's like, oh, well, you know, we've done, we've done the pyramid. Let's, let's do the one that's shaped like a toilet.
0: Well, a lot, a lot. And of then the... let's
2: say that it's inspired by Duchamp and yada yada, and you <laughs> hear all of this bullshit around it, which, and, and that's sadly what I see comes closest to making historically conscious architecture.
1: Uh, I think there's a lot of that. Uh, I think there's, there's and, a... and if you want to
2: cross the line into really being theoretically consistent, then you end up in paper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> you I you write think... a book,
0: which I... I... may be fine. That that may that may be. That maybe I afford afforded, and it's mm. uh, it's still m- more than a lot of people have. <laughs> but I think that a lot of this, like you say, a lot of the so-called theory today, and also, I want to say that not all theory is theory, <laughs> for that matter. Correct. A lot of the so-called theory not is, all is like you're saying, it's it's pillow talk. Oh,
2: yeah. mm-hmm.
0: You know, they fuck you over, and then they tell you, oh, you're you. you, you.
2: <laughs> I've heard so much crap when I was... Visiting at Harvard. Can I say Harvard? Yeah, you okay. can. Yeah. When I was, yeah, at the GSD. When David I was, and I
0: were both at the GSD. Yes,
2: and, and I visited. And uh, when I was sitting into oh, classrooms, the heard. I've heard so much rubbish. And mm-hmm. um, Tell me about
1: it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> There's a reason we came running home.
2: And so, and, and the times that, I mean, when we've tried to apply this to architecture, to architectural projects, they have made great
1: articles for magazines.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: And that's it.
1: Is there any? I'm curious. Is there any uh, particular bit of rubbish that sticks out in your mind?
0: You
2: don't have
1: to
0: name names, but you can you can talk trash.
2: Oh boy! I oh, remember that that class about talking about the future of architecture, and uh, and what topic. was the next sort of evolutionary leap in, uh-huh. in architecture? Mm-hmm. Of course. And and sort of naturally that points towards the virtualization of architecture. But talking about that, it was like, not okay, true. this is the project of the future, and it's one where the walls are dissolved, and it's just made out of fog. I'm like, like really? Oh, mm. did
1: they talk about smell? No, they didn't talk about smell. Oh, okay, that's uh-huh. that's another class. Yeah, yeah. not yet. <laughs> I must have missed that one. But it's. I mean, I,
2: what I was seeing there, and, and remember, I was not enrolled at the GSD. I was just there visiting. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I was sitting through class and saying, these people have never designed anything in their lives. I mean, they've, just hearing people talk is like they've never actually had to sit down and build something, I mean, a real project.
0: Some of them have, some of them haven't, and mm-hmm. some of them are not as good as they're told they are. Mm. <laughs> a, few them, a few of them are good, and they know who they are in my
1: book. <laughs> yeah, I think... That what a lot of this presents, a really key point that you guys brought up, is the narrowness of the opportunity to make a meaningful impact. And, of course, uh, any meaningful impact of what we're really talking about is applied design decision. Mm -hmm. Uh, The relative lack or relative presence of applied design decision is what separates the architecture from just the building. The building. And... With the way that technology has gone, with the way that economy has gone, the space for that applied decision has become narrower and narrower and smaller and smaller. And so it presents a challenge and perhaps an opportunity to widen that space. I certainly believe that's possible. I mean, God, I'd uh, go on for uh, several hours if I would actually get into the topic of how I think that's possible. I think someday we will do that, not today. Uh, but I was, I'm curious about what you guys think uh, about that opportunity. Let's talk about Alexander, your, your thing. Sure.
2: Christopher Alexander. Just reading his books, I'm like, oh, that's so cute. I mean, how he, <laughs> he had the opportunity of someone accepting that he, I mean, to sort of, he did a lot of it. Yes. Yeah.
0: I dig this. Yeah. I'm like,
2: well, that's, that's nice. I'm like, oh, I, I, I wish that what were the norm. Nice? But, I mean, if I were to share with my clients a fraction of the design process behind, I mean, just the logic or the method to the madness and why we're proposing the things that we're proposing, I would get fired immediately. Mm -hmm. I don't
0: think they might have the attention spans. And I think this is actually another thing that practicing architects don't do, and I find it commendable that you're doing, is that we're talking about incompetent clients. And this is super taboo. You know, you can't badmouth your client.
2: I hate most of my clients. I can say I'm not ashamed to say it (laughs) and publish it in this podcast. I hate most of them. No
0: one's going to hear it. Well, and the, uh, even if they were. I know they're not
1: going to hear uh, it. But you I mean, know they what? If they I, did, I don't care. I
0: have to applaud. This is, this is.
1: It's true. And it's, it's, impor- it's I important. It's important to say that Alonzo is not immune from this. Uh, he mentioned Alec Christopher Alexander. I had the good fortune to, to speak with the guy and he shared with me. He's written about this a little. Can I make he, a
0: small parenthesis? Go ahead. David had the fortune of speaking with the guy when he had an ethics commission on his back saying that he couldn't visit a living sample. Oh, God. So, yes, this is. Yeah, I had
1: had the university telling me that I should not speak to him at all, which made no sense to me. Uh, This
0: was not the the GSD, but this was another top tier university. university. Don't talk to the man.
1: So I'm glad I did. Oh, but he, he shared with me – he shared with me about how absolutely difficult it was and uh, very, very many of his initiatives got shot down. He had a wonderful plan for affordable home ownership, which would have done a lot to cut down forces that box design in. Mm-hmm. And it also would have cut out a lot of middlemen uh, like banks and financing that just – they really don't do much except suck money out of the process. Oh, yeah. We wrote an article about that. We, we, we did write – yeah. Um, I, I disagree, by the way. But go on. And that's okay. great. Yeah, I <laughs> and but, and he, disagree, but. but the – I mean r- r- regardless of okay. – I mean my main point, regardless of his – what he was arguing for mm-hmm. uh, is that uh, certainly in things he built in Japan with this housing idea almost on every front, he was met with – clients other forces that were actively fighting against this type of thing so he he had those frustrations you you were noticing that you were saying that if you were advancing those types of things you'd get fired he has similar experience sometimes well, uh, louis louis sullivan for example, absolutely hated the mindset of most clients. You were talking about that book of shapes. There's a famous story in Kindergarten Chats, I believe, where it's either him or Wright, but he was talking about something in, uh, in Sullivan and Adler's firm where they're talking with a client and it's a man and a woman making a house and the master architect says to the apprentice, uh, pull down the catalog of uh, Victorian house number 11. I don't remember the number, but the number doesn't matter. And he says, well, yes, but well, shouldn't we try? And he says, don't argue with the lady. She says she wants number 11. And so you just, That's you,
0: the template you just wonder what's for, going on. Well, I once, for a horror movie, right?
2: Once I, I, I applied to a job when I was living in New Jersey, and I had an interview at a firm that when I get there, I see the reception and the painting, the pictures of all their work, and they're all cookie-cut houses. Mm-hmm. So I have this interview, and I tell them about my architectural ambitions and how I see everything. And they're like, no, we need somebody to take measurements. I mean, we do cookie-cut houses.
0: It's totally Kafkaesque, you know, take measurements. <laughs> yes, we need somebody
2: to survey. I mean, then that's it. And surveyor like, well, yeah, that,
0: is the paradigmatic Kafka I,
2: job. I'm like That sounds very nice and everything, but it's not. I mean, what you're doing... Is doesn't, not what I. A, the, the universe of thing, the mathematical universe of things that you do or that you want to do, doesn't intersect at all with the mathematical <laughs> universes uh, universe of things that we do. I mean, there's no intersection at all.
1: And clearly, well, yes, and clearly, what we what we're attempting to do is to uh, smush that Venn diagram together. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, I think that, ladies and gentlemen, out there in podcast land. You can be part of this. (laughs) Hopefully what we're trying to do with this podcast is to start conversations to give people the confidence to let their eyes be open to be aware of what you feel when you're surrounded by architecture and to say, okay, I am able to understand this history, I am able to have an informed opinion, and we can really go someplace different and unusual, and I I really hope that the the conversation would spread, and if this podcast can be a small part of that, I'd I'd say we've done something important.
0: I agree, and I think uh, many, many of, I know for a fact that many of our listeners, but in general, you know, you talk about these things with a lot of people, and I think many people are aware, and many people are afraid as well to speak out. And we're in the incredibly comfortable position in which we have nothing to lose and everything to gain. So welcome to our podcast.
1: On that note, please send us your thoughts and feedback. Uh, if you'd like, info at lapsuslima.com. Thank you for listening.